flipping it spaghetti. It's my co-host, Blue. She co-hosts because I created her as a host. In the birthing canal, when I birthed her, I was like, I need a host. Here comes my host. Ah! No, you got to bring that back, seriously. Don't steal my mouse. <sighs> graphic novel review. Graphic novel, graphic novel, graphic novel review. Good boy, nine, uh, nine, nine, nine cents. No, that's nine dollars and ninety-nine cents. No, that's nine, nine, nine cents. <sighs> All right, we're reviewing Good Boy magazine. Read comics or go to hell. That's not nice. America's best-selling comic magazine. Boo. Good know. boy. Basically, this is like a newsprint magazine with a variety of samples of different illustrators and comic book creators. And it's all jam-packed with a little bit of some interviews in here. And some of them are inappropriate. Some are definitely inappropriate if you're showing your 10-year-old daughter. So I give it a thumbs up and you give it a thumb sideways. And together, that's her thumb pounding mine into the ground. If you're interested in getting something- so older than 18 or 13. Older than 13 or 18 or 52, you might like this. There's some inappropriate- Good boy. I guess when she ends a review, she just walks out of the room. Infinite spaghetti! Now go away. Get in your co-host box. No. Get out of here. All right, here's the intro. This is Infinite Spaghetti, a guided tour of the Creative Archives with your host, Ethan Minsker. Part of the Project Nerve Network. Poor Danielle Evans, she's the guest today and about to bring her on. Where are you in the world? I'm in Columbus, Ohio right now, but I was in Paris, France for the last three months. All right, I'm in New York City. Well, Danielle Evans is a sassy 30-something who currently lives in Columbus, Ohio, and is most notably known for originating the food typography genre, which is a weird thing to say, because first of all, what is, what is food typography? It's basically food and typography mashed together to make a palm sweaty mom spaghetti experience. This ends up becoming marketing, uh, advertising, videos for large brands and people with interesting tastes. I'm a little bit of everything, a writer, I'm a creative director, I do my own photography video, constantly stoke my creativity. How did this all come about? How did this start? It started in school. Once upon a time I was a kid and I grew up in industrial Eastern Ohio and didn't have a lot of money to do things like go on vacation or go out to eat or have a bunch of stuff. So in my household, we used food as entertainment. For me, sometimes I could get out of doing book reports if I promised to make a map out of cookies. People made room for me to explore things that were natural. And for me, what was natural was like butter, sugar, having some sense of warmth and an opportunity to share on a different level with the things I cared about. That ended up translating into college. I went to school for illustration and the very end of my illustration career, I found typography and design. It felt like those two things didn't quite mash together. Like it wasn't quite peanut butter and jelly. It was maybe like peanut butter and ketchup because illustration is this very world building, kind of like vision casting, making something out of nothing and then convincing other people that your vision is real. And you do that through 
traditional tools like painting and drawing and things like that. Design is this like kind of slick, sexy, turtleneck wearing, dad shoe toting place where people make apps and follow grids and have hierarchies. It just didn't seem right. I couldn't find a connection to those two things, but I felt drawn to both of them. So when I graduated, the natural thing to do was go work at a coffee shop for four years until I could figure out what the connective point was. And over time, I discovered lettering, which is drawn typography, and thought that was a really subtle way to tell stories, but also to do it in a way that's kind of neat and tidy that a lot of people can understand. It wasn't until I started playing around with things in my in my closet, the things in my cupboard in the kitchen, that I started to really get somewhere with my artwork because I felt like, oh, this is a different way to tell a story. You can draw a beautiful piece of lettering or you can uh, make a beautiful picture, but what happens if you put something behind it that already has a context, like spices or flour or legumes or produce? Like Then there's a different message and a different depth to the things that we have to say. As someone who was surviving, at the time my partner and I were living on $9 an hour, we didn't have a lot of cash, and so this was a very economical choice for me as well as one that seemed to be interesting (laughs) and full of possibility. So I remember the very first thing I did, I decided to make a piece out of coffee, and I decided to do that because one of my friends was a teacher, and I'm trying to explain to her, oh, I want multidimensional work, and I want people to gravitate toward it in a multi-sensory fashion. To a teacher, she was like, I don't understand any of that, but what if you made something out of coffee? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what a, what a great idea, and what a great accidental connection point, because when we have a cup of coffee, we're not consuming beverages, we're having experiences. We feel heat from the cup. We feel the aromas in our nose. We are ingesting the texture with milk and frothing and all that stuff. And we are having a a larger experience. And that was a vibe I wanted to bring to my work. So I one day ground down a bunch of coffee. I wrote the word French and used my fingers to spell it out. No stencils, no grids, nothing like that. And decided, oh my God, this feels different. And it felt joyful. Like, if I can be honest, I was never a great painter. I was never a great artist, like drawing kind of person. I wasn't gifted in that way. But I did understand sculpture. I did understand edges. I wasn't great on the computer either because I felt like, oh, you can make too many moves in one direction and the moves are infinite. And if you don't know how to stop, you just will never stop. (laughs) So I didn't know what to do with digital work, but I understood things in real life. I understood analog because if you push analog too hard, you break it. It seemed like there were natural guardrails, parameters to how things work in real life. While I'm learning this process, I'm thrilled, I'm psyched. There's so many cool things happening. I also have to learn how to photograph it because I don't know how to do that. How to take video and the whole time I'm teaching myself how to do things an exciting process. I started understanding that there were also different ways to bring sensory experiences into my work. So part of what's up on the screen right now is some ASMR work that I've done. I was grounded in the concept of wanting to touch people from a distance, which given where we are with like COVID and the pandemic, should probably resurrect that project again. The funny thing was I had no connections. I had no pedigree regarding my schooling. I was in the middle of the country just doing my thing and I posted my work on the internet and hoped for the best and the right people happened to see it at the right time and it went extremely viral. It's been almost 10 years. 
that I've been finding ways to make the things that we touch, taste, and eat a little more interesting and a little more communicative. Can you uh, read out your Instagram page for us, please? Marmalade Blue. The blue is spelled in the French feminine, B-L-E-U-E. -E. My daughter's name is Blue in the sense that my wife is Korean and cut off the E at the end, B-L-U. I wanted the E on there, but you make compromises. It's true. My name is rather popular, and by rather popular, I mean there's an America's Next Top Model with my name. There's a writer who for a time I was like some writer, and now she's extremely successful, good for her. So a bunch of us are fighting over Danielle Evans as a concept. I wondered what to do with myself, and I thought, okay, well, maybe I need a moniker. Maybe that's going to be the best route forward for me. So I started thinking in terms of what would it look like to have a studio? What does it mean to have, like, some sort of quirky or unusual pseudonym for yourself. And I was in the shower thinking and I just came up with the word marmalade. It sounded unusual and kind of offbeat. And I was like, oh yeah, I like the lyrical quality of that. I need another syllable. What's the last syllable? And the last syllable was blue. You can't buy blue marmalade. It's, it's an impossible or improbable combination of things. And that ended up encapsulating my work, which by the way, I chose that before I started doing this line of work at all. So it just felt right and I stuck with it. I chose the French feminine blue because I wanted to work in the Francophone community and do more French speaking or bilingual pieces. And my very first project ended up being for Target. It was for their short-lived Canada branch, but it was in French and English. And that was a really cool thing to be like, oh, I manifested that, it happened. I was very surprised when I got started. I thought, oh, I'll get like small mom and pop stores that want to try this stuff or maybe individuals or maybe someone will want this for a cooking blog. And instead it was very large contracts, very big brands, people that it, you would know the world over, Target the Guardian, Cadillac, Wix, Disney, Saturday Evening Post. I've done a lot of work for WAPO, LA Times, Kansas City Chiefs. I continue to do work with them. Chevy, really surprised by the people that hire me for some of these things because in, in effect, it's not always food and drink. It's almost never food and drink. It's people who understand that food and objects are metaphorical, like deeply metaphorical because the human experience, one of the connective experiences is eating. It's something we all understand, even if we don't completely understand it. For example, one of the most popular images I had when I first started my food typography Tumblr was one that said November out of mashed potatoes, and it's supposed to signify Thanksgiving. But the strange thing about that is all of the people that were posting it didn't celebrate Thanksgiving. I'm like, why is this connecting with them? And it didn't even matter. It didn't matter. The point was it was a cultural thing that people wanted to take part in. Should we punch into some of your other sites, getting off Instagram for a moment? Yeah, yeah, that would be fine. Also, you pulled up the um, blue jello. I love that. It's a black light jello project that I did. Is that what that is? <laughs> yeah, it's jello. That's it's so black cool. light. I figured out how to do that, and there's no additional colorways on it. It's all natural, it's in camera. Yeah, I wish I could get you to do stuff for my independent films, but I have a feeling your rates are way out of my budget. I mean, it depends. <laughs> I scale yeah, up and down. I don't for want to burden people. you with that. <laughs> would burden you. No, that is, that is actually something on my list of dream gigs would be to do key art key art and credit art for a project like a film or something that would be so cool if you like independent weird art documentaries i'm kind of the king of that i have those but they're all self-funded so it means i have to work a job to pay for it 
Daniel Evans on Linktree. This is just like a main site where you can find a whole bunch of her other sites. The way the web has developed, your personality and your work, your life is really spread across different platforms. So with something like a Linktree, this has been helpful for me to collect them and keep them all in one spot. So essentially, I've been spending time building out NFTs, building my portfolio, my body of work, writing on my Substack, making prints. I do talks and workshops. And of course, all of this has been like very weird and Figuring out the rhythm and the consistency of all of these things has been a little tricky with the pandemic. Some have become more important than others. For example, before the pandemic, I was doing a ton of speaking in workshops in different places. People are kind of needing a break from Zoom, <laughs> so that's not as interesting. There's a lot of facets to what I'm offering because I think ultimately I can have a title or a specific output, but that's never going to be enough to encapsulate what I do or what I care about as a creative person. There's wow, you made it yourself. Oh no, I mean, God. I had it made. I didn't make it. Doesn't matter. I wish I had the ability. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I think that's an exceptional piece of clothing. You'll wear it forever. Well, if you like this, there's a movie called Man in Camo that you can rent or buy most places that you find streaming services. Amazon, iTunes, all of that. NFTs. NFT is a piece of artwork. One or multiples blockchain artwork when you create it whether there's one or a multiples those are the only ones in existence and only one person can own one piece of art at a time fungible token non-fungible token i've had a lot of people go so wait a second what is this exactly it's a it's a jpeg or a gif that lives on the internet what essentially this is the code that is forming the next level of the internet the next stage of it it is something that we can build businesses on build platforms and also embed things so that is part of why people are so excited because this solves a lot of age-old problems with art. First of all, non-fungible tokens give artists the opportunity to start collecting stats, kind of like baseball players. Essentially, if you build out a collection and your collection does well, people can then turn around and resell it on a secondary market and you get a cut of that. So the better it performs on the secondary market or the more apt you are to get a direct sale from the original price the better things are going to be for you and the fact being anytime it changes hands you will always get some sort of percentage of it that's a pretty big deal because in the art world your ability to make money stops at the moment you pass your good to someone else this also solves a problem of provenance which is a fancy french word for who made the thing essentially as artists this is another problem that we've had on this version of the internet you can go onto Google and you can search for a thing and you can find a really cool picture that you want to use, but you have no idea who did it. You have no clue if the website you're getting it from even is the original place. And if you wanted to know more about the original picture, you have to do a series of complicated back searches to find it. And if you're lucky, you will. But you might not, especially if it's been altered, deleted, adjusted in any way. What this is now doing and what other companies are now pushing in this next level of the internet is the opportunity to have provenance, which means your name and your credentials will always be tied to the thing that you built. So with these kinds of images, people who are uploading and selling their stuff, their name, regardless of where it shows up on the internet, whether it be on another NFT platform, whether someone has it in what we call a wallet, which is where you're able to buy, sell, and trade and hold these things, it will always have your titles and credentials with it. 
that's a massive deal because it means as an artist, you don't have to wait to die for someone to care about your artwork and to see any benefit from it being sold. I started participating in this myself. So my, my series is called Maladroit. It means bad right, and I called it that because while I was in France getting ready to start my new life and I was living with my partner, we had been remotely dating for two years, and I was just like, you know, I think I really want to move to France. I think it makes sense for me and who I am as a person. I spread my wings, and three days into my trip, I break my right hand. That's every artist's nightmare. <laughs> every artist is horrified to do this. And of course, I'm in a foreign land. I'm feeling vulnerable. I'm physically vulnerable. I, I'm not fluent in French, although I'm much better after this experience. And I just started experiencing what it felt like to move through an environment where you didn't fully understand what was happening. Physically in your body, what people were telling you, culturally, there was just a lot of dissonance. And at first I was really upset. I was upset that my expectations were ruined and I brought all of my work equipment with me. I started thinking about, well, what can I do? I've done all the grieving for this trip. What can happen was possible. And so I started looking into using Play-Doh. I challenged myself to essentially make a series of videos using only my left hand to build out everything. I opted for French, English, and gibberish phrases to help contextualize my experience. And all of them are about breaking things, falling, being aware, becoming cognizant and fluent with a new hand, with a new culture, with a new language. That was a beautiful experience for me. In shooting them, I thought to myself, okay, well, how can I shoot this and make this interesting? I can't really use my camera. I don't have the dexterity for this. I shot everything on my phone. So part of the charm is it is lo-fi, it is imperfect. That seemed to be a beautiful thing for a left-handed experience because my right hand has been about precision and focus for almost a decade. But what would happen if maybe my left was a little freer? a little more liberated. I ended up with these really interesting kind of moving, shifting, almost like speaking videos. They've been really exciting. Gas prices have been really high. I've still managed to sell a few. And I think in the next couple of weeks, if things continue to tank down, I'll sell some more. But I'm also building out an alphabet of moving videos. Like while I was doing this, I also was grabbing characters and capturing them in the same way, but making new ones. So I now have an entire alphabet, an entire language of this strange, middling, liminal experience I had. One that was awful, but at the same time, I, I would never take it back now. To explain, so when you're saying gas prices for the people who don't know it, it's like you're taking cash and you're converting it into cryptocurrency. In the act of converting that into cryptocurrency or making the NFT, it has to be processed through many, many computers across like the whole system. And in doing that takes a lot of energy, which is not great for the environment. There's controversy in part because people do not understand the entire process that goes into making these things happen. And because a lot of the units are converted, like your cash becomes Ethereum, which is cryptocurrency, but is also code. So what does this mean when it's then applied forward to a gas price, which is then given, it's not a jewel, but like something like a measurement of heat into the energy that is processed forward. It sounds like a really funky math equation and it's made a lot of people very nervous. What's really interesting to me is that I started exploring and writing about NFTs and about this potential controversy 
last November. And around that same time, I started consulting for a climate NGO, you know, concerned about the environmental cost of everything. And I started bringing this to them and I compiled all the articles I could find. And I kind of wrote up a little report and I presented to them and I went, hey, how do we feel about this? Like, should my industry, like the creative world, be concerned with this? And is there anything we should like just not do? I mean, you guys are the experts. You speak at the UN. You trying to tackle this. What should we do? And they laughed at me so hard. They were like, this is really cute, but we're more concerned about open war and like religious and political extremism. Those are leading causes of climate issues. And what we're talking about here is spending energy, but it is not to the effect that we think it is. We'll let you know if you (laughs) just stop doing this. And I just felt so embarrassed, but (laughs) they were like, and further, we're also kind of interested in what this could do for furthering the cause of climate adjustment and averting climate crisis. I get their concern, but the way it's looking out there with the environment is that you can't really pick and choose. You have to be across the board saying all problems related to the climate have to be tackled across the board. You can't pick and choose large versus small, big country versus smaller country. It just has to be everybody everywhere working together. That's my co-host, again, Blue, adding the visual effects behind the me. You can't see it if you're listening, but she's adding rabbit ears and talking in the background. We got a comment. This is also streaming on our antagonist movement page. And I'm one of the founding members of this art movement called the antagonist movement. So I believe this comment is related to that. So it's from Louie. Hello guys, just letting you know your manifesto has inspired me for years. It changed my way of thinking an all inclusive substance use disorder pathway of recovery is being developed in Florida. Art and creativity is part of it. The mission comes before the money. Louis, thank you for the comment. Keep up the good work. Keep up the good fight. And antagonists never die. We just multiply. No, I think it's an interesting thing with the NFTs. I mean, I'm like preparing to launch a whole bunch of them and I, I keep having this conversation with other artists. I just did a an art residency that ends this week on a place called Governor's Island with this group Four Heads. So we've been having conversations with other artists about the NFT thing. And it's, you know, the age range is varied. They're my age and older and younger. And one of the artists on the island had just done the whole process of doing his first NFT. And then he sold the very first one and I guess like the equivalent would be at about like $4,000 if you cashed out. And the art world and market here in New York, they kind of look at NFTs as saying like, well, it's going to be a passing fad. And I say, well, it might be that the market is inflated now. It's another canvas and that's not going to go away. So as long as there's the ability It's something there. And I think if you're doing the strategy for yourself as a creator and you're thinking of yourself in the future and how historians look back, to me, it's like, okay, I have an opportunity to use a new platform, a new, a new canvas. So thinking strategy, like this is the very first one I'll put out. I'm only going to make it one. And then that's another thing that I feel like historians then would be going back to and saying like, look, This guy does paper mache art, he does films, he does fanzines, and here's his collection of NFTs. It just makes sense to explore it and learning. And also it's like, this is only something that's kind of exploded in the last year. 
and it probably means it's only been in existence for like the last four years or so. 30 years from now, if you start now, historically, you'll be looked at as like the early adapters of this. And that also means early adapters get a lot of shit. A 52-year-old man who does a fanzine. Right. I'm, I do paper mache artwork. I do paper mache street art. Yes. Right? So like I draw dogs. I mean, believe me, I wear like a pink suits and camo. So built for taking crap. A lot of these other artists are like, oh, I don't know. Like that's like such a, like it's gauche or something. And I'm like, yeah, but really it's like, it's just a canvas. It's a new way of thinking about the internet. We're thinking about the internet as a decentralized place. Like there are platforms and plugins and things that are trying to still plug you and connect you to certain things. So you aren't completely floating in space. But the idea being, if this works as people want it to, you can plug in and then plug out and you are your own entity. You don't have people mining your data or tracking you or farming you if you don't want to. You can live like that. You can exist in a place where right now there are no structures put in place for oppression or systematic bullshit. There are absolutely barriers to entry, which could be argued as part of that. But as of right now, it allows people who want to participate and who are curious to get involved as opposed to people who feel they must. And I think part of where I saw a shift in the way that the internet works now, people refer to that as Web 2, by the way, and this new way of thinking is Web 3. I think of a shift in Web 2 as, oh my goodness, I was on here to explore and to connect with new people and to learn about culture and just understand the world a little bit better. And there came a point where I saw like brands and my parents and people who are not very curious or who are more like, well, I have to be here because my job expects it of me because my boss wants me to follow them or whatever. That changed the way that we act on the internet. It changed how we talk to each other. I think about anytime something happens and someone like has a job that they've done, they're like, I'm so excited to partner with. We all know those words. Or, hi guys, it's me, blah, 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 coming to you from. Like, we know those words words and they don't mean anything anymore. It's a fascinating thing for me because all of the things that we're supposed to be doing, the things that we've been told we have to do to make it on the internet, have actually made the internet a hell of a lot less fun. It's made it harder to make money. And it's strange to also think like the internet was fun and we were making good money when we had the upper hand on brands and politicians and these celebrities that are the ones who really are forming the culture that we live in in day-to-day life. And I think it made them feel weird that they didn't have that level of power or understanding. And so Web 2 has become people trying to turn this into just the digitized version of the world that we currently live in. And I think a lot of people adapted the internet early because they weren't satisfied with the world that they lived in, the small town that they came from, the people in their families, or didn't feel like people understood their hobbies. And so now we're seeing ourselves at this kind of like, as you've said, early adoptive moment in the next phase of the internet where we get to experience a version of that again. And soon it will become what it becomes. But right now, this is pretty fun. (laughs) I want to live here. I'm somebody who just likes to test out every possible little weird thing. And it's okay to experiment and explore and see. Yeah. A lot of people got caught up on is this harmful based on what we know or don't know about climate? And I think based on what I read in my research and based on what I was able to present to the NGO that I was consulting with, we all determined that this was actually not a major issue. And if we wanted to tackle a digital issue, a big one would be infinite scroll or autoplaying video. 
Those are two of the largest energy sucking things that we have currently on Web2. And something that I've been noticing about NFT world and about some of those platforms is you have to opt infinite scroll. You have to opt for playing video. So people are listening and trying to be like, well, how do we make an adjustment? And there's a lot of discussion that within the Ethereum blockchain that we're all building this on, they are in the process of making a new version. And when that new version comes out, these issues are supposed to be solved for because it was not originally built for this kind of use. So that's the funny thing about the internet is that we keep making things that we didn't anticipate making <laughs> and they become something completely different. And then we have to go back and figure out, well, do we scrap it or do we fix it? And I think that's part of what's so cool about the time that we live in. And I also think it's natural to me specifically because that's what my work is about, is about exploration and seeing things a little bit differently and tweaking and being like, yes, you know, you know jello, but it glows. Did you know it can glow? Or grown crystals, like salt crystals in giant vats in my house, which was really unglamorous, but the final product was just so different and interesting and made me think about crystallizing and time in a very different way. I think that spirit exists in a bunch of us and the ones of us are embracing this time or at least being curious about it. I think you're going to see some significant success and some of the best that it has to offer right now. This is my Substack, so you can find it under danielevans.substack.com, which is my full name, Design and Us. And for me, my writing is constantly seeking to connect the dots between us and these systems that we find ourselves in. So I write all of these little think pieces about design from the perspective of social justice or feminism or what it looks like to treat other people with respect, how history tells us that crediting people and authorship is a radical sign of allyship. A lot of things that I'm seeing culturally that feed into design thinking that maybe we're not connecting otherwise. So this particular piece is about Anthony Bourdain, and I wrote it right around the time he died. It just made me think, I, I watched a bunch of his shows, I've read his books, I just love him and I think about his work so much even after he's passed. But I remember him saying something like, if I don't love my job, then that is a failure of my imagination. And I thought to myself, what an immense amount of pressure to put on oneself. His job arguably was the best. He traveled everywhere and ate food with cool people and got to tell it like it was. And everybody loved him for it. And even if they hated him, they still wanted to be him. Like he had what we called everything. Yet there were still times where he was sad. And it made me think that sometimes we put a lot of pressure on being creative. And in this case, I think that doing what we love can sometimes kill us faster than doing what we tolerate. So that was that idea of this tenuous climb to creative fulfillment. Yeah, you do what you want to do, but it's also the hardest thing you've ever done. And the days when it is rewarding and exceptional, you love every second, you lift more weight at the gym, you run a little faster, you walk with your chest puffed out a little more, and it's easier to be kind, but the days when your job that you love so much is failing. Everything is awry. I mean, it hurts. It's a soul-sucking pain. So this was just for me around telling us to ease up, <laughs> and to chill out, to remember to not take ourselves so seriously. In essence, my writing style is the verbal expression of the visual work I do. I try to embody powerful words everywhere I go and I just feel like they they come out of me and so I try to catch them in whatever basket makes sense. And in this case, it's writing. Here's another plug for a film I made called Self-Medicated, a film about art, but the whole basic premise of the entire film 
is that there's a universal thread through not all creatives, but a lot of creatives is that you're making art to medicate or control depression and issues with mental health. You know, that's true for myself and it's true for most art artists that I'm in contact with. You know, when people look at Anthony Bourdain and they go like, he was so talented, he was a writer, a chef, a host of a show, and why would he kill himself? And I'm like, because he's a very talented guy, because he's a writer, he's a host of a show, and he's a talented cook, which usually is kind of the first indicator People who are doing a lot of creative things doesn't mean they're necessarily suicidal. It usually means is that you're filling a void by doing something creative. And the good thing typically is that that's like for most people is a healthy way. And again, I always say this is like, look, if you're out there and you're listening or you're watching and you're having troubles with depression and mental health issues, it's okay to reach out. It's okay to find professional help, and it's great if you can do that in art, but it's better to talk to somebody and get professional help with that. So for me, it's not like a shock at all. Anthony Bourdain or Robin Williams. There's a lot of people who are just extremely talented, and then people are like shocked when they kill themselves. And to me, I'm like, eh, it's not a shock to me. When you know how to put so much of yourself in the work that you do, that can be really dangerous. Um, but we never talk about that. We talk about how, oh, the world wants that. The world wants that. And it does want that. It wants that because the world doesn't know how to do that. And it also, therefore, doesn't always know how to receive it. So that can be a very complicated, difficult thing. But I think it's integral to kind of like we spoke about earlier, like divorcing yourself from the opinion of other people. Like people have to matter in your work. But I think in part it's because you do the within work and dig deep in to be like, who am I? And then from there, translate it out based on the world that you inhabit. And then other people flock to it. That's where all of this gets really tricky. And I think if you do that in an inverse way, it can be kind of dangerous. Can you explain to me what Substack is? Is that just like a WordPress type of thing or? It's closer to Medium in the sense that it is a website specifically for publishing, usually written word, but some people do comics and things on it, but it's also a mailing list. So it's a built-in mailing list. You have everybody's information. You can have paid subscribers. You can release paid content, those sorts of things. And people can generally like find a small or simple way to support you. I have a bunch of different articles there. Algorithm is gonna get you is also a pretty, pretty popular one for me. Talking about like how the Instagram algorithm has shifted so dramatically in the kinds of things Instagram is willing to bolster. Misinformation about the vaccine or Trump nonsense, just dark things. It's just willing to give those an audience because those clearly garner attention. And just how the expectation that artists will behave on the platform is extremely unreasonable. If someone leaked an interview where Instagram told them, okay, you're gonna do X amount of reels, you're gonna do X amount of stories, you're gonna post X amount of times a week, you're gonna do a live, you're gonna do this, that. And it was just like, that's an entire marketing team. Nobody has time to actually do this. How can you actually make work if you are so busy with these things? Yet that was something they just thought was really attainable. Portfolio, <laughs> my portfolio is kind of like my very large body of work. And they can find this at Marmalade, blue b-l-e-u-e -E is the blue dot com if you also type in m dash b-l-e-u-e -E dot com that's my my abbreviated and it'll take you here nice and so on this it shows portfolio live events speaking media about prints and blog 
The interesting thing about my portfolio pieces and my, my work in general is that it's all real. It's all done in real life. If you see a piece made out of noodles in a bowl, I did go make those. I did go roll them myself. I did grow those, those salt crystals on that necklace. I set all of that confetti and yes, I'm still finding it in my floorboards years and years later. I do all my own stop motion. I do most of my photography unless it's a very large job and I'm in the photo. I do collaborations and sometimes we'll do the styling for those things as well. To work in real life has afforded me all kinds of opportunities to measure time, to measure very specifically with like stop motion, for example, time passing. But as things are exploded or deteriorate, I've also chosen to capture some of those processes. It's interesting when you work with mediums that are like food, clothing, plants, whatever, all of these things have a, a different half-life. And so the amount of time you have to work with something, the amount of planning and energy that goes into building something like this, now it's a little more intuitive, but at the beginning it was very tricky. I used to tell people I thought it was a small miracle that any of this existed in the first place because of just all the things that had to align just so for it to happen. All of our work is a, is a gift and a miracle in that way, but maybe with mine it's a little more obvious because it's so strange. Yes, I've used overhead setups over the years. I've had to buy lights. I've had to learn how to how to light things and check for focus. I mean, I barely knew how to operate a camera when I was in college, so this was such a, a jarring thing. Over time, I've also adapted to like, oh, I know how to build a mural. You passed a project just now that was a giant food mural for South by Southwest. It was edible, and it's missable in my site here because it's the little imagination brown box, but... That was a piece that people could come up and eat off of the wall. And I built it out in Adobe Illustrator, passed it to a CAD designer, and then all of us built it upon arrival in Austin, Texas. This has taken so many different forms and it's been an excellent way to explore spatial intelligence and what it means to inhabit a box or inhabit a finite container. And I'm hopeful as I've started playing in things like AR, for example, that that will unlock more opportunity for dimensionality and interaction that maybe is lost to people who can't show up and can't spend time with me on set as I build. This is crazy the amount of work you have. And for the people listening, I'm just scrolling through pages and pages of text like of ham on a sandwich spinning around. <laughs> and it's like beautiful. Thank you. The funny thing is this is all heavily edited. <laughs> Do's and don'ts with... Danielle, what are we gonna learn today? What are your do's and don'ts, I guess, for shooting and working with food as illustrations? Do's, I would do a test. Something that people will ask me when I'm doing client work. They're like, well, we don't understand what you're saying. We see a, we see a sketch and you say that there's gonna be barbecue sauce and there's gonna be ham and there's gonna be some, some deviled eggs. And I'm like, yeah, just like that. And they go, I don't really get it. Can you do a test? And then we do the test and they're like, oh God, it really was all of those things. <laughs> it was really just ham and meat and barbecue sauce and, and deviled eggs. But sometimes people just can't see it. And so oftentimes when you're selling ideas like this and you're selling them to a team, not only do you need to get the creative team on board who are like, yeah, man, a track with you. I didn't need pictures. I was on your website. And you're like, oh, I love you. You also need to get the person who's like, I'm from accounting. I don't understand. 
because they're the ones who write the checks. Oftentimes having these additional steps to get everybody involved and on board and excited is, is a great way to do things. I would not start a project before measuring. I can't tell you how many times um, John Mulaney has that stand-up where he talks about writing happy birthday on a poster and like the H and the A are really big, but like the happy birthday is like really tiny and squished and compact. That's how some of my projects start when I don't take the time to do a measurement. Do check your files in the computer. I think what gets really weird is sometimes when you're drawing or doing something in analog, you can get away from it and get some distance from it to really see it. If you take a photo on your phone or on your computer or anywhere, just like a digital device, the same thing is true for working on digital devices. Sometimes to get away, you print your shit out so you can look at it and be like, oh, this is how this actually sits or the size isn't right. And I think sometimes we just forget that taking a screen down or putting a screen up can really help see things. I would not take your time with, with ham or seafood or dairy products of any kind. Anytime people ask me to do this, to work with those things, I'm like, hey, just so we're clear, this isn't going to be complicated because I have exactly 40 minutes. If I'm really careful about it or fast, maybe 42 before everything starts smelling, before things start going bad under lighting and curdling, it's disgusting. And <laughs> like to come into a, a room or a studio after having not been in it and then being just halted in the door by rotting dairy or meat is appalling. <laughs> I don't feel like they pay any of us enough to, to deal with that. Do have an excellent team. The pandemic has kind of sucked because I haven't been able to go be in places to work with people. And one of my favorite parts of my job is the fact that I get to travel and go be like a little ambassador in somebody's agency or brand for a little bit for like three or four days, maybe a week. And I get to see how they function and the way that their teams work and just being able to be part of that is really exciting. I tell kids in school, like imagine everyone in the art department, there's like one person from every department and they all are really good at their jobs. Don't under any circumstance talk shit or complain actively on a job. There are a lot of times where things can go awry and I find one of the best tactics for dealing with that is just saying, why don't we all work on a solution together or we're all going to learn together right now, which is my fancy way of saying, I don't know what the fuck's happening, but we're going to figure it out. I think if you can come to stressful moments or points of tension when you're working with other people and see it as like, okay, well, we're going to find a solution. Yes, we acknowledge this is not working the way we want and yeah, it's a little stressful, but this is the vibe. I've worked with people who want to shit talk in the bathroom or just try to be like, you're on my side, right? You're on my side, right? And I'm almost always, always somewhere in the middle. It just seems like my best case scenario always is to like keep any weird feelings to myself, discuss those with family and friends later outside and do everything I can to just maintain professionalism, confidence and unflappability. thing we'd always say to young artists when we were doing shows in locations that were outside of our own locations, like our own galleries and our own vents, is that like, look, we're guests here, right? So we don't care how terrible it is or how annoyed you are or whatever. Say thank you, clean everything up when we're done, be as professionals, whatever. And when we get in the van to head home or get on the plane, that's the time. Talk shit all you want to us when it's just us privately and we can write them off as a group and say, we will never go back to that venue again. On the event, we're like, absolutely do not talk shit or do anything like that while you're there. 
And then the second part of that was like, do not get drunk at your own openings. It's cool. Like you think it's a party. It's not your party. It's everybody else's party. Your job is to be there to work and explain your art and like get people interested in your work. But you can't be wasted. That's the same thing in the speaker world too. I do a lot of speaking in workshops and it's interesting how like sometimes they'll be like, hey, do you want anything before you go on stage? And I'm like, absolutely not. I have to be sober to do this. I If I don't, I won't have words. It'll be a mess. I'll be laughing all the... Like, no, nobody wants to pay money to see me do that. My nervous energy when I'm talking in front of a large crowd is usually what keeps me animated, energetic, and insane. The thing that keeps driving me with this work, my love for baking, it is my interest in words and how we use them and use them as connective tools. But more importantly, I think it's just wanting to understand and wanting to understand that there's something bigger and greater outside of myself that we are connected to. Like if I'm really honest, the more I do this line of work, the more I realize feelings and experiences, the kind of subject matter that I care about transcends language and culture and in many ways, words fail. The energy is what carries carries it forward. So personally find satisfaction and excitement living in that spirit of curiosity and possibility and things that could be. And I think I feel happiest and the most animated when I'm talking about things that could be. It's important to really like dig into whatever feelings the vibe is the sacred calling of your work, the thing that makes you feel the most alive. It doesn't have to be serious. It can be like irreverent or grotesque or whatever, but tapping into that and going really deep on why you feel that way and what generates that, that feeling, that sense of purpose, that is what helps you pull it out. So for me, exploring, playing, like kind of being in that space of like light curiosity gives me energy and fuel and I think the whole point is we're trying to generate energy and fuel to keep working for the rest of our lives producing the work that we think matters well done it seems like you were prepared I can be found on most of the social channels and I can be found under Marmalade Blue that's M-A-R-M-A-L-A-D-E and the blue is spelled B-L-E-U-E in the French way I'm on Instagram I'm on Twitter under Marmalade Blue on Substack but my Substack is Danielle Evans dot substack.com or you can search design and us because design is in fact about us if you're interested in my nfts or nft journey i can be found on OpenSea, openc.io backslash marmalade blue i enjoy hearing from people and yeah if you want to do stuff like this or give it a dabble i do workshops a lot of them have been digital over the last year and if you're curious drop me an email uh, you can reach me at salu which is like the S-A-L-U-T at MarmaladeBlue.com. Thank you for watching Infinite Spaghetti. If you like the show, please share, comment, subscribe, rate, review. Shows like this only exist with the constant support of its viewing audience. Only on Project Nerd TV.